We record on Turrbal and Yagara country in Mianjin, Brisbane. Brisbane Festival recognises the integral role Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples continue to play in the creative and artistic events and celebration spaces and pays respect to Elders past, present and emerging. Beginner's Call takes you backstage with Brisbane Festival and into the hearts, minds and rehearsal rooms of the casts, creators and critics behind Queensland's most anticipated event of the year. On this episode, I'm excited to be joined by Anna Yen, theatre maker, performer and writer of Slow Boat, which receives its world premiere at this year's Brisbane Festival. Blending vaudeville, musical theatre, circus, Cantonese opera and martial arts, Slowboat is a play within a play inspired by the unexpected arrival in Australia of Anna's father, along with 580 other Chinese men during World War II. At its heart is a powerful question. How can we survive and thrive when so much is out of our control? Here to share a little more of her father's incredible story, welcome Anna. Thank you, Adam. Thanks for having me on your podcast program. Annie, your slow boat journey began over 10 years ago when you discovered something compelling about your father's life. What that's, did you discover? That's right, Adam. I discovered when I was growing up, and I grew up in Bondi Junction, Sydney, that's where I was born, I knew my father had been on Nauru Island around World War II, and I also knew that he had been in Brisbane post-World War II, but I didn't know what he was doing there. When I was a teenager, I did ask him once, what was Nauru like? And he said, oh, the boats were cool. (laughs) And that's all I knew. And then before he passed away, he told my elder sister that the first place he worked when he arrived in Australia was Hedges Creek in Central Australia. Now, I looked up Hedges Creek, Googled it, there's nothing. But 10 years ago, this is where, you know, you asked me about 10 years ago, I read in a book that... 580 Chinese indentured labourers had been evacuated from Nauru during World War II by the Allies to Brisbane and then sent to Central Australia to mine Wolfram, that's tungsten ore, for the war effort by the Allies in Hatches Creek. Hatches Creek. Mm. Then I looked into it and yes, he had been on Nauru Island as an indentured labourer working for the British Phosphate Company, which is run by the British Australian New Zealand governments as a indentured labourer and with many, many Chinese men. And they'd left China because of China was war-torn civil war and war with the Japanese and poverty and starvation, etc. So they sold them in a three-year contract to Nauru. And yes, the Allies ev- hurriedly evacuated these 580 men off Nauru during World War II ahead of the Japanese taking the island and brought them to Brisbane. Mm. And uh, they landed on 8th of March, 1942. And then the Australian government thought, well, we could do with a workforce on the Wolfram mines and it's used to make the tips of war weapons hard. So then the Chinese men went up there and then uh, General Douglas MacArthur, who was uh, running the Pacific 
campaign here based in Brisbane thought, I want a Chinese workforce too, and invited them back to Brisbane to work on Bulimba at the Bulimba Barge Assembly Plant where they finished the rest of the war helping MacArthur's campaign building boats, which he was using to help take back places that the Japanese had taken. So, but what was very interesting, Adam, besides this history, I mean, who knew, right? Mm. I mean, this show is actually Australian history that we don't really know, but what was really exciting was that I found out that on all these places, the men held concerts for each other on their time off, which kind of, you know, little bracketed explains why my father didn't mind too much when I started learning acrobatics from the <laughs> Chinese acrobats much later when I was supposed to be studying a law degree. But anyway, that's, uh, that, that's like... <laughs> that's episode that, two. That's a digression. <laughs> what happened was that on Nauru, I found out that the men on their scarce nights off would actually hold concerts for each other and a few of them would get backstage half an hour before the show and go, well, what well-known story will we tell? And then improvise Cantonese opera. And then if they didn't finish the story that night, they'd do it the following uh, night off. And it was very important to the men, apparently, because when they were evacuated from Nauru, they were told, you're only allowed to bring the clothes on your back and we leave in two hours. Well, the men apparently secreted the important things, their Cantonese opera costume, you know, the mahjong, <laughs> the Cantonese opera costume and the mahjong. How about that? Wow. And, uh, you know, these things that are important to them and maybe a musical instrument, I'm not sure. So culture was super important to mm. the real life men. And then I discovered that in Hatches Creek, the men built a theatre for themselves out of scrap materials. I've seen the photo of the theatre they built and I saw that they had on it was some words which seemed to be that they had made a concert for one of their public holidays, basically. And then when I was looking into the their Belimba chapter, I discovered that they had concerts there on the Belimba Barge Assembly Plant. I say on because Belimba was considered an island at that time, mm. you say on. Anyway, I met a woman who had been 17 at the time the men were there, and she'd been invited to go to the concerts next door with many hundreds. Actually, there were 800 Chinese heritage men on Bilimba during the war, and this woman was, as a 17-year-old, was invited next door to the concerts, and I asked her, she was a European-Australian, I asked her, um, what were the concerts about? And she said, I don't know, I was too busy flirting. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, she gave me a photo of this group of men, performers backstage. You know, she actually had wow. a family photo. I mean, her family was right next door to the camp, so they were very friendly with the men and her family let the men run a small off-site cafe there and a little shoemaking business there and a little off-site laundry. But anyway, she went next door. She showed me a photo of the men backstage performing and the also a photo of the men lounging in their barracks. So because I discovered not only this thing about my father, that he'd been an indentured labourer and that mm. he they'd been evacuated and they were wartime refugees here, I was totally taken by the fact that they were arts and culture was very mm. important part of their life. Slow Boat, the show I've written, by the way, which I'm not performing in, There's, uh, mm. I, I'm not uh, because all the cast are men, Chinese heritage, Australian men, beautiful, wonderful performers. The men, uh, I've got six fictitious characters who tell the story that I've just told you from war-torn and poverty in China to Nauru to Central Australia to Bulimba and then to an unknown future because most of them 
had to go back home at the end of the war, the Australian government sent most of them back on the SS Cheshire on mm. the 8th of December, 45. But some could stay. I'm so. saying presumably not your father. No, my father stayed. Mm. I th- apparently you could stay. I mean, it's not easy to stay. There's parallels to... It's episode three. <laughs> <laughs> uh, some stayed, less than 10% managed to stay. So these six fictitious men, but all based on research and inspiration from various uh, stories I was told, found out there at the end of the war having a victory concert on the Bilimba Barge Assembly plant where they tell everybody this story. The interesting thing, though, is they've organised this concert, but the tensions between the men, which are sort of bubbling below the surface, the fictitious men kind of erupt on stage in front of us. Mm. We don't know where it's going to go. But, yes, that's what I discovered about my father. And, see, that's why I think... He didn't mind when I got three siblings and I started studying law and the others have all got law degrees. I never <laughs> finished. I went sideways right. and went, you know, went into the arts. And apparently my father said, as long as she's happy. Now, that's unusual for that generation to okay someone having that kind of, you know, yeah. like an arts career instead of a law degree or something like that. And I think it's because he knew personally the value of art and culture. Mm. You know, their nights off where they had Cantonese opera and, and you know, the concerts I just told you about in the desert and on Bilimba, I reckon, were very uplifting, which is why he then said, as long as she's happy. Yeah. Now, that is a very snappy summary of what was no doubt an incredibly meticulous and involved process. You mentioned that it was almost by chance that you read about these 580 men, and that sparked an idea in you that maybe one of them was your father. Where to from there in terms of pulling at the threads to reveal the the depth of the incredible story that you've just shared? I read that and just backtrack a bit, was that 25 years ago, I did one woman show called Chinese Takeaway about my mother, grandmother and myself, which was adapted into a 52-minute film for SBS. Because of that, someone on some radio show knew I had something to do with Chinese heritage. I was asked to speak about my Chinese heritage when this particular person's book was launched, which was called Big White Lie by Tom Fitzgerald. He's a historian and a diplomat. He at the time worked in Beijing, an Australian man. Anyway, I was given a book as a thank you for the radio Mm. interview. I didn't read it for two years. Sorry. (laughs) I wish I'd read it. Sorry, John, if you're listening. Yeah, John, John, sorry. John Fitzgerald. Anyway, I read that and I went, oh, because I'd seen my father's papers. He'd Mm. been evacuated on the SS something or other that I couldn't read. So I actually emailed him. This man, the author, he's this famous author, and I emailed him, look, blah, 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 and he wrote back from, I think he might have been in Beijing working, you know, for the Australian government, and he writes back and says, look, my researcher is in Melbourne, here's her name. And so I emailed her, and she said, give me the name of the boat that your father was evacuated on and anything you know about him. And then she confirmed, she said, here's the National Archives thing. 
your father was on the boat, the, the SS Trienza, which was the boat that ended up evacuating all those men. The Free mm. French Navy evacuated the men from Nauru, swapped them to the SS Trienza on New Hebrides, and then they landed here. So I got it confirmed from the historian, and then I dived into the National Archives. I can't remember what question you asked me, but anyway. <laughs> but Doesn't anyway, matter. What, I, what was so many fascinating things. So I just got obsessed. I hadn't thought at this point I'm going to write a show, right? Mm. What I discovered, well, I just couldn't stop researching. I discovered that there was a Italian-English heritage woman who was the nurse on Nauru Island for the men. Her doctor was the the doctor for the Chinese men for the British Phosphate Commission. And this woman was evacuated with the men and was asked by the Australian government to accompany the men to Central Australia. Her name is Bridget Tothill, Nairi's story. And she has a handwritten diary that's in the National Archives. So in it, from her perspective, as was what happened on Nauru with men. I mean, you know, it was from her perspective, you know, mm. her own cultural perspective, but she really appreciated the men clearly. And so she had lots of stories about what happened on Nauru and what happened when the German came to bomb it and when the French, free French evacuated the men and what happened all along the way in New Hebrides. And then she got on the train with the men towards, uh, well, the government hadn't actually told them where they were going. So the men actually, and this is where I first read about it in her diary, the Chinese men were very good at being a collective together and went on quite a few strikes along the way because, mm. one, they weren't told where they were going and when they got to Central Australia, uh, the conditions that they'd negotiated and signed on were not, um, were not, were not met. And also on Nauru, they found out that the British Phosphate Commission at that time was selling phosphate to the Japanese. And because, you no, know, the Japanese government had been having a go in China, they refused to load boats bound for Japan and things like that. So the men were very active. They were very active mm -hmm. together, and which is another thing. I've, amazing, right? There was a big brotherhood and that brotherhood as in not like a gang triad brotherhood, but community. Mm. And so anyway, back to Bridget Tothill, <laughs> so many diversions. She told many, many stories about what happened to the men and also what happened to them in Central Australia because she was in there uh, for the whole time. They're in Central Australia and only sort of stopped being their nurse and her husband, the doctor, when they came back to Actually, they went to Townsville first before they went to Balimba. So after the Central Australia, MacArthur took them to Townsville to do some work on, at the Armstrong paddock up there and then back to Balimba. But Bridget Tothill's diary had amazing photos as well. Is Bridget Tothill's right. diary the, the one, that's the one the that came before Bridget Jones's diary? <laughs> Indeed, indeed, indeed. Luckily, so this Bridget Tottle Nairi story, she'd actually taken a small writing course somewhere along the way, maybe before she got on Nauru Island, and she was sort of having a go at sort of writing. So, and she put photos in it too. So, like the wow. photo, there are photos of the men on her and her husband, but all the Chinese men and the First Nation people on Nauru, as well as actually there were connections between the First Nation people in Central Australia and Bridget and the Chinese too. But I haven't really gone into that mm. in, in our show. There's and did you see in, in that incredible collection of historic images, did you see your father? Uh -uh. No. I looked and looked and looked and I uh, didn't see him. 
But what other piece of beautiful information uncovered was a cine sound newsreel of the men working on Bilimba. Mm. So that was when I really there was it's about one and a half minutes of footage of the Chinese workers, and it was all about the Chinese workers. It was called Chinese Shipbuilders Aid Allies, mm. and I looked. You know, the first time I thought, I wonder whether that's my father, my father. But no, I never found him. But there were a lot of other. Actually, I think the cinematographers chose the really good-looking men to put the <laughs> camera on. So there were all these really good-looking Chinese young men working on the assembly plant, and. Yeah, we still do that today, don't we? Gorgeous ones to the front. <laughs> yeah, gorgeous. <laughs> you know, the ones with the good cheek structures on camera. It. They were like oh, in front of the camera. Oh, we, I can only dream. <laughs> the ones who could smile. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned your much earlier works, Chinese Takeaway, which was a one-woman show about your grandmother, mother, and yourself. Yeah. And when creating it, I recall you mentioned that there was not a great deal at the time that you knew about your father's history, and and therefore he was largely absent from that particular work. Yeah. Do you consider Slow Boat as a kind of companion piece oh, for your father? Oh, definitely. I feel like, I don't know, maybe it's the men of that era not really talking about their stories and the hardships and stuff like that. When I made Chinese Takeaway, I didn't know that much about his backstory. Mm. I knew a little and so the little got in there, but I feel that this is like an opportunity for his story to come out. As a young man, you know, this is like a young man's adventure story. Mm. It's the young man's adventure story. But, of course, because I never really spoke to him about it except, you know, what was Nauru like? Oh, yeah, the boats were cool or whatever. Mm. It's based on research. So it's a kind of an homage to my father and the men that he was on that journey with made in an artistic way because I've had to extrapolate from all the research. Mm. It's extraordinary. As you said, there's, you know, this is the story or there are versions of this story, hundreds of them from this group of men who had that shared experience together. And you mentioned at the start of our chat, it's astonishing that this is a story that we don't know about. We had a very interesting chat in another episode with Black Social and Alethea Beetson, whose work Queen City speaks about or speaks to the question whose stories deserve to be told. And it sounds like that this is one of those incredible stories that had the, you know, there was a very real chance that it could have been forgotten. Do you feel that it in the series of serendipitous events that you've described, do you feel that there was something greater at play and that you were supposed to uncover this story? Oh, absolutely, Adam. Absolutely. I mean, and people were so generous with me. And I think the timing of it was right too. So people were super, super generous with me. For example, the researcher that John Fitzgerald put me on to and then finding the in the National Archives and what else I found, one thing led to another, led to another. Some people did know this story. There was one woman who had written her master's on this group of men there's an Australian woman living in Melbourne who did her master's thesis on this group of men. So she knew and I met her. She kindly let me photocopy a great big chunk of her thesis, which she hasn't published yet. That serendipity was pretty amazing. And then I would just uncover certain things. And because we've got improvised Cantonese opera in it, I was hunting for a Cantonese 
opera teacher who came to me serendipitously too. There's so many serendipitously, <laughs> serendipitous things. Cantonese opera teacher, how I got found her. I was looking everywhere, couldn't find it, and I was I was hoping to go to Sydney and Hong Kong before this came up to study. But, of course, COVID, no chance, nothing, no, no, no chance. One day I saw online on Facebook that someone was selling a Cantonese opera drum. The circumference of it is like a 44-gallon drum, red lacquer. It was a certain price, and I thought, oh, maybe. And then one day I woke up and went, about a week after, I must have that. And I grabbed my phone in the dark, look up, is it still going? Is it still available? And it was, and it was 50 bucks off. Oh. <laughs> you know, so See, it pays to wait out, it doesn't does. it? <laughs> and so then I ring the fellow and then I go down there and I say, you know, the person's definitely not Chinese. And I go, why have you got a Cantonese opera drum? And he points and he said, my mother-in-law, so who's a Chinese heritage woman from China. I say, why have you got a Cantonese opera drum? She goes, ah, well, my teacher made a concert here, a Cantonese opera concert, brought a whole troupe out here 20-something years ago, and there's a drum left over from it. I said, you've got a Cantonese opera teacher? She goes, yes. I go, I need a Cantonese. <laughs> and so she introduces me to Amelia Wong, who teaches Cantonese opera singing here. In and Brisbane. In Brisbane, to the, within the Chinese community mostly. She has, and then she's agreed to come in and help us with one piece of Cantonese opera. I mean, that is serendipitous. Mm. Like if I hadn't seen that ad for the Cantonese opera drum, so really, we owe all this thanks to Mark Zuckerberg. Possibly, <laughs> possibly. But 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 I did ask another man in the can in the Chinese community. You know, can you help us find other sort of artists? And he actually, I said, but I have found this person, and he said, oh, I would have sent you to her. So I, you know, maybe the universe is more helpful than that. Maybe they'll offer you just one thread. You know, if you miss, <laughs> you know, if I miss, if you missed a bit, if you missed the bit, someone else was going to lead me to there. I think. Don't you think? I mean... I think this might be the idea for your next play. It's serendipity. Sliding doors. Sliding doors, sliding doors. You mentioned the role of the Cantonese opera within the piece. That's one example of deep research into the traditions and the cultural practices of the time that you had to become an expert in recreating this expert. world. I wouldn't say expert. <laughs> really, I wouldn't well, say expert. Well, you had to become familiar with it, at least. Familiar. Let's say familiar, yeah. but not an expert. You can't... Cantonese opera to be an expert, you'd have to have a lifetime of training. Yeah. You'd have to train for 30 years and then you'd go, oh, yeah, I know something. In this exploration of some of those, you know, retold folk stories and the traditions, cultural traditions, what were some of the revelations or discoveries that you made personally? Hmm, that's a good question. Well, I had mistakenly thought that Cantonese opera was high art. And I'm told that of that era, it wasn't high art. It's not like European mm. opera now. Cantonese opera troops would travel through the countryside, village to village, and put up a temporary bamboo stages and perform. And local people would come and watch. And you could sit and chat and eat snacks and drink and talk while the Cantonese opera people were performing for you. So that was very interesting. Mm -hmm. In those days, it's not equivalent to European opera. It's kind of more common. Like someone said to me, and I don't know really how true it is, kind of more like karaoke. It was a popular art form. Like in those days, like, mm -hmm. you know, pre-World War II 
and this is pre-television and, yeah. you know. And I know that in the older days, acrobatic troops would also tour around. So it wasn't high art. That was very interesting to me. And in Slow Boat, I get to insert other skills that I've gathered along the way too because did end up doing contemporary circus performing and learning from Chinese acrobats for a little bit. And I used to be in Rock and Roll Circus. Mm. Do you remember yes, Rock do, and I Roll do. Circus? It was in West End and I was that's why I came to Brisbane um, a long time ago. I mean, now it's transformed into circus. But in those days when it first started, it was called Rock and Roll Circus, this company that did a lot of social justice kind of theatre. So, and I learned things that various skills like plate juggling, which I've managed to slip into the show. So, you know, Slow Boat has a few skills, you know, like a little bits of circus school. But I have to say it's actually about storytelling. Yes, Slow Boat has these art forms like a bit of circus and, and Cantonese opera and, and actually the men are on Na- China and Nauru. We use more uh, Chinese-inspired art forms. When we get to Australia, we use more vaudeville. And when we get to the US camp, US base camp on Bilimba, we're using more swing and boogie-woogie, like inspired by US popular culture. So mm. it's kind of like a journey artistically as well. Yeah. Having all that there, and it's going to be beautiful and the performers are beautiful and so skilled, we're actually interested in the deep story question that you asked right at the beginning. When everything is out of our control, how do we survive and thrive? Like when you're tossed in a rip, when you're caught in a rip, how do you survive? Mm. Like these men and other people who are caught in the rip of war, how do you survive? You know, we investigate the role of community and resilience and culture and arts and forgiveness. I think that's really important to note too is that you mentioned the variety of artistic styles and genres and art forms that create a really joyous experience within this work, but there is a very strong political undercurrent too. The play is largely set in the 1940s, of course, during which time the White Australia policy was active. For those unfamiliar, that is a policy that was specifically designed to limit non-British migration to Australia rapidly and drastically changed the demographics of the country. It's quite easy to forget this dark time in our country's history. How did you juggle telling your father's story and what was a a story of triumph against all odds, but also alongside the realities of what was quite a dark chapter in our country's history? It's all there. Mm. There's a lot of humour in the show. But it's not all humour too because there are episodes of those sort of issues in the show. They're peppered throughout it. And in a way, because of the beautiful art form and the comedy, we're allowed to go deep and to the uneasy parts and to the challenging questions and challenging emotions. Because there's other parts that are so light, we Mm. can go into the depth of things that, like the white Australia policy that you mentioned, like the politics amongst the men, like other things that I won't reveal now because you've got to come and see the show mm-hmm. to actually get the whole thing and I don't want to do the spoiler thing. It's a beautiful work with beautiful art forms where we take you on a journey to, in a way, the, the depth of humanity. Even though this story has a particular setting, World War II, 
Chinese heritage men, Australia is actually a universal story about when times are really, really, really tough, how do we treat each other? Mm. You know, like how do we survive all this kind of turmoil? Mm. the uh, Louise Bazina, Brisbane Festival's artistic director, often speaks about the important role that art can play in looking back as a way of moving forward. For you, how did this process of revisiting and documenting your father's story impact you personally? It made me uh, sort of understand him more. Also, Oh, there's so many questions like, you know, what is the role of brotherhood, for example? What is the role of loyalty? And how has what has happened to you, how has what has happened to him and the other men in their earlier lives, how does it still resonate in the present? And also, how does it resonate to me? And also, like so many, we talk about serendipity, like, It could have been that my father didn't end up staying, but like 92% of the men had to go home because he neither could find a job, no one sponsored him. Mm -hmm. And also there were other obstacles to staying, like the exemption from the dictation test, you know, because of the white Australia policy, that's called the Immigration Restriction Act. The Australian government could uh, test you on any European language any time in the first five years because they wouldn't have been allowed it. No one was allowed to stay if they hadn't done this dictation test. Can you imagine? We have a scene about that, Mm. don't worry. (laughs) Um, But it made me appreciate that my father had been very resilient and that had weathered a lot of things to get to be where he was. And, And what I was saying about serendipity is, wow, if he hadn't managed to stay, I would be, maybe I wouldn't exist or I would have been born somewhere else. Mm. So I really appreciate actually having been born in Australia and educated in Australia and having a life here. It actually made me appreciate so much more how hard he worked during his life when the time I knew him to contribute to me and my siblings, you know, having the kind of life that we have. Mm. I mean, I know it was hard when they got here and the white Australia policy and the dictation test and all that, things that, you know, you'll see in the show, but it's gifted me the capacity to be here Mm. and also I'm an artist, get to tell stories. And what's interesting is that towards the end of his life, I visited him one time and he the first thing he did when he saw me was I went to see the Chinese acrobats. You know, this is about five years before he passed away. He showed me a program. There'd been a visiting troupe from China and he was so excited about it. And this was after I'd already trained with the Nanjing Acrobatic Troupe of China in Albury, Wodonga for nine months. And it's after I'd already been in rock and roll circus a few years. So he knew what, and he was like connecting with me on, you know, isn't this stuff fantastic? Mm. You know, and... Oh, it just made me again, again, appreciate the role of and the power of art, mm. the potential of art to lift people. You mentioned that your father has since passed mm. and, and therefore won't ago. be able to see what his story came to be on stage. But what do you think he would think of the play if he were to watch it? I think he'd really like it. He'd really like the art forms and the music and the beautiful performances by the beautiful men, wonderful actors. The people of that generation didn't really like talking about their suffering. 
I don't know what he'd think about that. Do you know what I mean? Mm. People kept their secrets and? because they, I don't know, because it was too hard to share, because I don't know, because they thought people wouldn't understand. I actually hope that he'd be proud of how I've talked about it. Maybe he would realize through seeing the play, he'd see that I do understand something. Mm. Delved into a lot of this is, I hope that he would go, oh, okay, you saw the complexity of our lives. Nothing's white, black or white or yellow. You know, like there are good in people and no good. And I think it's equally important that we keep some secrets of our own. And as you said, we can't give it all away because we want people to come and see Slow Boat in its world premiere season at this year's Brisbane Festival. My guest has been Anna Yen, the writer of this incredible true story. Thank you so much for joining us, Anna. Thank you, Adam. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks for uh, having me. Brisbane Festival returns to fill the city with three weeks of wonder, delight, story and celebration from the 2nd to the 24th of September 2022. For information and tickets, visit brisbanefestival.com.au.